It's 1911 Baseball, and I am P.Q. Ribber here again, opening up another issue of the Evening Star to check out what's going on. Yeah, uh, we're about to get to opening day. I thought yesterday was going to be it, but um, it doesn't look like it. Looks like, uh, yeah, people, we're still preparing for uh, the initial clash of the season. Our top headline is Walter Johnson here says he will get into the club's fold at once. Walter Johnson arrives, is ready to sign contract right in the center, top of the page here. Star pitcher hurries from depot to take workout at ballpark, is in good condition. J. Ed Grillo reporting. Walter Johnson arrived at 1240 today, hurriedly left the depot for his hotel to gather together his baseball belongings and proceed to the ballpark where he intends to take his first workout for nearly a week before today's game. Johnson will sign a contract sometime today or tomorrow with manager McAleer. He refused to say on what terms he would get into the fold or whether he intended to sign for one or more years. I shall see McAleer to talk things over. I am ready to sign, but there are a few details to be arranged before I do so, but there will be no difficulty about that. I am ready to pitch now, but of course would want a few days in which to get limbered up. I've not had a ball in my hands for nearly a week, and I need several workouts before I will be ready to hold up my end, said he. Johnson appears to be in perfect physical condition and appeared to be in particularly good humor. Though the hour of his arrival was not generally known, there were fully 50 fans at the depot to greet him, and this fact seemed to please the big pitcher very much. Johnson inquired about the time of the game and the condition of the new stands and gave orders to hurry his baggage to the hotel so that he could get out to the ballpark. He seemed particularly anxious to get some work and bemoaned the fact that it was not warmer here. The long trip from Coffeeville did not seem to bother him in the least. He said he was tickled to get a chance to get out on the field and get up a good sweat, after which he predicted he would feel a whole lot better. Let's see. Both teams are ready for initial clash of the season. Wood and Gray apt to be opposing pitchers. Great crowd to witness opening game this afternoon. Okay, so this is opening day, but you know, it's the evening paper, and we didn't quite uh, get in, so let's see what's going on here. First, they have uh, the lineup, uh, or I guess the tentative lineup. For Washington, you have Milan at center field. Lelevelt, and I guess this is a batting order. In left field, Elberfield Feld at third base, Cunningham at second base, uh, Jennier, is that what that is? Let's say we can enlarge this. Yes, Jenler in right field, Henry at first base, McBride at shortstop, street catching, and great pitching. For Boston, we have Gardner at second base, Hooper in right field, Speaker in center field, Lewis in left field, batting cleanup, Wagner at shortstop. Engel at third base, Williams at first base, Kleinow a catcher, and Wood or Chicote pitching.
today's game. The initial clash between the Nationals and Red Sox this afternoon will find but one new face in the lineup of either team. Williams, who is slated to play first base for the visitors. McAleer presents a team of players with whom local patrons of the game are familiar, though there will be a great change found in John Henry, who was a green college boy last season and now is regarded as one of the coming stars of the league. There will be but little ceremony preceding the first game. President Taft will toss the ball from his box and then the clash will be on. The game will start promptly at 3.30. At no time since Washington has been represented in any baseball league has there been a grounds here capable of accommodating as large a crowd as the present one, which, though by no means completed, will be able to take care of about 14,000 people. None of the seats is under shelter, and a good view of every inch of the field is to be had from any part of any of the stands. Both teams are reported to be in good condition, and as they look evenly matched on paper, the indications are that a hard struggle will be witnessed. Dolly Gray's final workout on Georgetown Field yesterday convinced manager McAleer that he was the logical man to start off against the Boston Red Sox today. Gray appears to be in perfect fettle, and as left-handed pitchers have always been more or less troublesome to the men from the hub, he is believed to have an advantage over any of the available right-handers McAleer might have suggested. Of course, McAleer will have another look at Gray when he warms up just before the game, and should he fail to come up to expectations, then a shift may be made in the plans at the last moment, and Bob Groom substituted. Room is in perfect condition to go through the game of ball and to have him pitch the opening game would give him much needed confidence in himself. But McAleer is hopeful that Gray shows up well before the game, for he believes that if the National Southpaw's at his best today, he will beat the Red Sox. Though Tris Speaker arrived, Together with manager Donovan from Boston this morning, it is not settled he will play in the game this afternoon. Triss has been under the weather for some time, and he is not yet in the best of health, so that he may decide to remain idle a few days longer. Manager Donovan is well pleased with his team's prospects, and he expects to cut more of a figure in the coming race than he did in the last. I believe my team is stronger than it was last year, said he. We will prove it, too, before the season is very old. We are in good shape and ready to give a good account of ourselves. Man. And, and yet Taft is the president who succeeded Theodore Roosevelt. William Howard Taft will throw out the opening ball. President Ban Johnson of the American League arrived this morning to attend the game this afternoon. Johnson was greatly pleased with the appearance of the ballpark, the construction of which he considers a great bit of enterprise. He believes that McAleer's team will occupy a much higher position in the race this year than it ever has before. He seems to think that the young players McAleer added to his team last fall have made a great change for the better. It's going to be a tight race, said the head of the league. It seems to be considered a foregone conclusion that the athletics will repeat 
in the minds of many folks, but I doubt that very much. There are more strong teams in the league this year than last, and I look for a hard fight for the flag right down to the finish. While the left field on the local grounds, um, as the diamond is now located, seems rather short, it is but 50 feet short of the regulation distance of 285 feet that a fence or obstruction shall be from the home plate to the outfield. The distance is now 230 feet from uh, the plate to the left field pavilion, yet it will take a fair hard hit ball to go into those seats. Some of the players were figuring yesterday had a best pitch and hit to get an advantage from this short field, but manager McAleer set all ideas as to this at rest by the announcement that he expected his players to hit naturally and not make any effort to pull the ball while he didn't want to give any of his pitchers to give any heed to the short left field. It would prove a great handicap to pay any attention to that short left field, said he. If players try to hit in that direction, they are sure to handicap themselves, and if a pitcher works to prevent the ball being hit in that field, he's very apt to get himself into a lot of trouble. I believe it will be policy to play the game just as if left field were of the regulation size. According to the Boston players, the Red Sox pitching staff this year will be the same as last year, for the opinion seems to prevail that not a single one of the many young pitchers who were taken on the training trip will make good. Not one of them has shown the class needed for pitching in this company, as one of the party remarked. It is doubtful if any one of them will ever get a chance to work in a championship game in the American League. Either Joe Wood or Eddie Chicate will pitch against the Nationals today. Both are reported to be in perfect condition, and this assures a well-pitched game so far as Boston is concerned. Wood is regarded as one of the coming pitchers of the league, and while Chicate has been a consistent performer for several years and a pitcher who is always dangerous when an important game is on. While the first game of the season is no more important than the last so far as the team's standing is concerned, every team works harder for the game than most any other during the season. It is but natural that all players want to get a good start in the race, and there's no better way of doing that than to start with a victory. Sometimes the first game is not well played for the reason that the players are over-anxious, and it usually takes several days for them to settle down to their regular routine. In the baseball briefs, Ed Earl Gardner says he is in better condition than he ever was before at the opening day of the season. Stranger things have happened than that he be found in the Highlanders infield this afternoon. The, the Highlanders have a giant battery. Harry Abel's a left-handed pitcher from Texas measures 6 feet 3 inches, and catcher Williams of Canton, Ohio is about 6 feet tall and is said to weigh 200 pounds. Pitcher McGrainer of the Highlanders has been turned over to the Richmond Club. Russell, the catcher, and Litchi, the infielder, go to Bridgeport. At present, Litchi is in Williamstown, Mass., having a twisted knee attended to by Doc Barrett. 
While termed an old-timer, Steinfeld is far from a ripe age. He was born in St. Louis, September 29, 1876, hence he has yet to reach his 35th birthday. On the other hand, Wagner was 37 on February 24th last, last and the Teuton is not ready to step out. Ted Easterly has won finally his spurs in the contest for right field honors. He was weak on fly balls at the start of the training trip, but has rounded into excellent form in time to get the place. Connie Mack keeps his score of every game and files the record away every day so that when a player comes to signing a contract and asks for more money, Connie can show him just what he has been able to do on every occasion he went to the plate. There is some system to that. Pitchers Feister and Ritchie, the last holdouts on the Chicago National League baseball team, signed contracts yesterday, the last day before the season opened. Both received slight advances in salary, but how much was not disclosed. Owner Charles Murphy also sold Wolf and Keener to Fort Wayne, Indiana. The Detroit team used to beat Cy Young, says Germany Schaefer, by hitting the ball out for about four or five innings and then laying it down. We used to have the old man so tired he couldn't get the ball to the plate, and then we'd chenale it to the far corner. Moving along, Ty Cobb thinks naps are stronger than ever. Believes Cleveland will give Boston hard fight for position, likes McGuire's pitchers and outfield. Ty Cobb, champion batsman of the league, says he thinks that Cleveland has strengthened considerably and should give Boston a battle for fourth place. He picks Detroit and New York as the only clubs able to battle with the Athletics. We're in much better shape than we were a year ago, said Ty this afternoon. We've got four good young pitchers in Lively, Covington, Cavett, and Mitchell, while our catching string will be better than last year, as Stanage and Beckendorf seem to have improved a lot. As for myself, I never felt better in my life. When I think Cleveland has strengthened the most, where I think Cleveland has strengthened the most, is in the box and the outfield. I am not so sure about the catching department having improved, but then I have not seen Landon Smith work since they improved. I am not jealous of Joe Jackson. I wish him all the luck in the world. I hope he hits 400 for that matter, for if he does, I am going to try and top him a point or two. And we are up to H.J. Ed Grillo's pertinent comments on happenings in sportdom. When Robert Lee Hedges, owner of the St. Louis Club, rushed to the wire and made an offer to purchase Walter Johnson, the moment the news reached him that there was a breach between the star pitcher and the club, he did not add much to his already waning popularity. In baseball circles, it is considered very bad form to offer to purchase or trade for a player who is holding out and Hedges' action in the Johnson case only adds to the overwhelming evidence that he is hardly the man to be numbered among the club owners of the American League. Since he failed to receive any encouragement from the local owners, all sorts of peculiar stories have been appearing in the St. Louis papers, which may or may not be inspired, but which in every instance are ridiculously far from the truth. 
In the Mound City, they seem to be under the impression that the local club would sell Johnson because it needs the money, though there is no figure that it that could make the local club part with Johnson. The following is a sample of some of those stories. There is a rumor going round going the rounds, rather, that the Washington Club will sell Johnson. It is said that the recent fire which destroyed the grandstands of the Nationals put a crimp in the team's bank accounts and that there is now a disposition on the part of the owners to get ready cash for Johnson. Johnson will probably bring around $20,000 if he's ever put on the market. Connie Mack or Huey Jennings may stand ready to pay as high as 30000 for the addition of Johnson to either's pitching staff would virtually cinch the American League flag. According to dispatches from Washington, Colonel Hedges offered 10000 and any two men on his club, excepting his manager, Bobby Wallace. Instructions to the umpires against kicking on the ball field are more stringent this year than ever before. This is particularly true of the National League, where Tom Lynch is following in the wake of Ban Johnson and trying to stamp out rowdyism. That it is not necessary to hamper the game with unbecoming conduct on the field has been proven by the success of the American League, and it is to be regretted that it required so many years to prove to the National League owners the fact that the public wants a clean sport. In sizing up the American League race, a New York writer said, The Washington Senators are likely to be heard from as McAleer appears to have strengthened the team over winter, but it is hard to see how Cleveland and St. Louis can fight their way to the first division unless some unexpected strength develops, which does not show on paper. Charlie Comiskey, the old Roman of baseball, says that the Chicago White Sox will win the pennant. His optimism is not shared by the critics in general, but judging from reports from the training camp, the hitless wonders may furnish the surprise of the season. On second thought, though, I feel disposed to give the White Sox a place in the first division as the team which was practically cut to pieces last season is built on sound lines and is quite likely to hold the pace no matter how fast. In his efforts to improve the team, Jim McAleer is leaving nothing undone. Though the season is just about to open, he already has a line on several young players of promise whom Scott Cahoe will look over just as soon as they get in action. McAleer has the right idea. Every year, several brilliant ball players are brought up from remote leagues and independent teams, and he proposed to get in on the ground floor for this talent. Having been successful in his tour around the big college circuits, Scout Cahoe is looking the collegiates over too, in the hope that he may stumble across another John Henry. Out of Philadelphia, McGinnis slated to succeed Harry Davis at first base. Indications are the County Mac plans to develop youngster as he did Eddie Collins. Is Jack McGinnis the ace that Connie Mack has buried in the hole to succeed Harry Davis at first when the latter gets ready to lay down the white man's burden? Indications seem to point exactly in that direction, but while the fans are doping the situation out, now that Ben Hauser is slated to go minor leagueward, Connie himself 
is saying nothing. Nothing except to state that when Mr. Davis cannot play first base for the athletics, we'll have somebody there that can. However, there were several things, significant things, connected with the final game between the world's champions and Phillies, which tended to point to McInnes as the man in reserve for the first sack. To begin with, Jackie came into the practice with a brand new first baseman's mitt on, and he went to first to run through the signals. Then during the game, he was sent into bat and punched one on the optic for a single. Punched one on the optic. I like that. <laughs> Hit one in the eye. <laughs> it has long been a problem where Connie Mack would find a place for such a rattling good man as the little chap from Gloucester, Mass. He's not such a little chap at that and is growing all the while. Within a couple of years, Mac ought to be around the six-foot mark with plenty of good substantial codfish grown muscles tacked on those inches of stature. Stan's pat on infield. Many of the critics picked McInnes to play third with a shift of Baker to the outfield, but there is not the slightest possibility of that. It will be a long time before the astute Cornelius breaks up his infield machine by transplanting Baker into another position. Look the situation over, and the only place where Jackie McInnes can break in is at first. All the other infields are as young as the kid is. No chance to put Mac at second with the spry and peppery Collins at the bag. What chance has a youngster to get into action at shortstop while Jay Barry is plugging around there? How much of an opportunity would McGinnis have to take a crack at third basing with the doughty Baker still doing business? And in any case, any man of this trio was injured. There is Claude Derrick, a rattling ball player, to take his place. Looks like Jack for first. Under these conditions and circumstances, and if little straws show the direction of the wind, it looks like McGinnis for the first sack. Precedent for such an action has already been established by manager Mack. Eddie Collins came to the athletics from Columbia as a shortstop. He was a pretty punk piece of shortstopping, too, as was discovered when he started in the big show. But he could hit, and Connie realized that fact. So manager Mack wanted to save the hitter. He slipped him into the outfield, and Edward himself is the authority for the statement that there never was such a fearful outfielder. But Connie must keep Eddie. His knowledge of the game was wonderful, his hitting superb. So Mack shifted his chessman and placed Collins at second. History has recorded the rest. Similar situation now. The same situation exists with McInnes. As a hitter, he measures up to a high standard. For his knowledge of the game, his ability to fathom the attack of the other fellow to call the turn on his play, he stands without a superior in the American League. Under these circumstances, a perfect analogy to the Collins case, what would be more simple than for Connie Mack to develop Jack McInnes into a first baseman, giving him the benefit of the teaching of such a tutor as Harry Davis. Cannot one predict that this boy trained in such a manner will develop into another Eddie Collins? Then, within a year or two, Connie Mack will have the slickest young infield in the nation. 
5,000 fans turn out. They see Orioles beat Athletics in close game on Nichols Day. Baltimore, Maryland, April 12th. A pretty and an interesting ball game made St. Nicholas Day at Oriole Park yesterday, one to be remembered. And the Orioles won the contest from Connie Max Athletics by the close score of a 3-2. to two. Incidentally, Jack Dunn's fondest hopes were realized from every standpoint. It was estimated that about 5,000 fans turned out to pay their last tribute to the memory of the late Oriole captain, while the exact amount to be turned over to the widow will not be known for a few days. Dunn said last night that nearly $2,700 had been received thus far. Many people who received tickets have not yet accounted for them, and it is believed that other checks will be received today. The fans began to arrive at the park around noon, and when the ticket office was opened, several hundred people were on hand to get choice seats. Practically every seat in the bleachers was occupied, and the grandstand was more than two-thirds filled, while half of the boxes adjoining the press box were taken. This day in baseball, April 12th. Ah, some historical tidbits. In 1889, Pitcher William Bailey of the St. Louis American League Club was born in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Also in 1889, Frank C. Ringo, a well-known catcher, committed suicide in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, we should look at... Let's take a moment and look farther into that, if we can. Uh-huh. Here it is straight out of Wikipedia. On January 1st, Ringo was 1889. Ringo was married to Emma Williams of Fort Scott, Kansas. After a lengthy period of battling problems with alcohol, Ringo had reportedly stopped drinking in the late summer or fall of 1888. In late January, the Sporting Life reported that Ringo was in Kansas City without an engagement for next season. The newspaper further noticed that Ringo had played well in 1888 and opined, He is a good man when he keeps straight, and he has kept straight for a long time now. Here is a chance for some team to secure a good, hard-working catcher. He signed to catch for the Kansas City Baseball Club and reported to training camp in the middle of March. For several months prior to reporting to training camp, it was reported that Ringo had not touched whiskey, of which he is inordinately fond. Shortly after training camp began in March 1889, Ringo resumed drinking and had been on a terrible spree for two weeks before his death. On the afternoon of April 11, 1889, Ringo ingested 40 grains of morphine at his mother's residence at 1214 Virginia Avenue in Kansas City. It was reported that the morphine was his second attempt at suicide, and his actions were motivated by feelings of mortification and shame at being unable to free himself from alcohol. According to one newspaper account, the suicide was deliberately planned and carefully executed, and the drug had hours to take its effect before Ringo's condition was discovered. A doctor was called, and at 10.30 p.m., Ringo was declared to be in dangerous condition. He died at 9 a.m. the next day in the presence of his family. Ringo's suicide is the earliest by a Major League Baseball player to be recorded in the Baseball Almanac. He was buried at Elmwood Cemetery in Kansas City. 
back to our This Day in Baseball. In 1890, the Philadelphia Brotherhood team defeated the Tomaqua, Pennsylvania team in an exhibition game, 29 to nothing. And in 1909, April 12th, Shide Park, Philadelphia, dedicated the athletics, defeating the Boston Red Sox 8-1. to Catcher Mike Powers and infielder Simon Nichols, who have since died, played with the winners. Attendance was said to have been 30,162. Out of Pittsburgh, Hunter is to play first, Jack Flynn a catcher. Fred Clark gives his reasons for making change at his initial base. Both are good men. Pittsburgh, April 12th. Fred Hunter has cost the Pittsburgh club a big sum when the value of players who figured in the exchange is considered, but there's nothing to indicate that Fred Clark has been David Harrumed in the trade. Jack Flynn's remarkable improvement alone is responsible for the smoldering suspicion in some quarters that he will be back at first before the season is far advanced. It is not because Hunter had been found wanting or overrated. He simply faces comparison with a good ball player who is destined to greatness in the game if present form is lasting. None of the great fielding work that Flynn has been displaying this season showed last year when he was compelled to undergo an operation. There was no denying the fact that in the Hot Springs game, Jack played the better fielding game. But either Flynn or Hunter, if placed on the market, would be given a high valuation. Flynn would be a valuable acquisition to any club, and Hunter would be a good first baseman anywhere on the National League circuit. Admirers of Flynn's work keep saying, how is Clark going to keep that fellow on the bench? This always is occasioned by Jack's timely hitting. But Clark seems to indicate that right there is the point that swung his decision. A good pinch hitter who can be put in at any stage of a game when a hit is needed is invaluable to any club. Clark has pinned his faith on Hunter, at least to begin the coming race, in the face of wonderings and outside rumors, wages that have been placed on the outcome of the future and so on, the Pirates boss was asked if he still stood pat on Hunter. I do. Hunter is my first baseman. Flynn is a catcher. There is something to Hunter's hitting, too, that Clark is recognizing, in the face of little shortcomings in fielding that. Fred showed in the early games at Hot Springs. Fred, like Jack Flynn, will be a mighty dangerous hitter when he has overcome a little impatience at bat. His eye is good and he swings hard, but Clark has curbed the big fellow's constant desire to swing. Flynn's shade on Hunter in fielding must, in fairness to Hunter, be attributed to Flynn's experience in the position, the little slip-ups that have been charged to Hunter at Hot Springs, and some of the faulty judgment he has displayed on one or two occasions developed with his daily imitation into the fine work of the buccaneer infield. And that, my friends, is the star for our day. And uh, tomorrow... It real official results from the beginning of the 1911 season await you. If you have stuff to add, trivia, uh, and what have you, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but of course, you know, that is unavoidable. Uh, we'll keep it to a minimum. If you got anything to say, though, the email address remains kpqr.torc at gmail. 
www.thinkingdeeply.com. Uh, enjoy your time between now and when we meet again, and set the controls for the heart of the fun.